So it's traditional at the beginning of a meditation, uh, at the beginning of a Buddhist teaching rather, to, um, or a meditation session really, um, to go for refuge and establish our motivation. Um, in Buddhist philosophy, we are going for refuge means seeking shelter or um, connecting with things that can provide us with a sense of safety. And, uh, in, and these are the, what are called the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. There are um, many different beautiful poems and different ways of expressing this. Um, I like to contemplate what the three jewels mean to me personally and how they're relevant in my life. Um, so when, when we begin, we, we start by thinking about the Buddha jewel, what going for refuge to the Buddha jewel means. And the, the Buddha, we have these beautiful illustrations of, of uh, these artistic representations of Buddhas. We have carved statues and so on. Um, the Buddha is the, the principle that your consciousness is on an evolutionary trajectory that's not limited by a given lifetime, a given birth and death. That consciousness isn't destroyed at death, that it's on a evolutionary trajectory that is really beyond the scope of time the way that we perceive it as human beings. And that the ultimate fruit, the ultimate goal of that evolutionary process is to become a being that has perfect love and compassion and perfect omniscience. And they're not, they, they are no longer limited by physicality, by, by materiality, and therefore are able to essentially manifest miracles and emanate m multiple bodies in order to appear in other people's lives in order to help them. Uh, that's what these illustrations are, are representing different aspects of what that enlightened consciousness is like. Um, but for us, it's really the, I mean, in going for refuge, we're going for refuge in the idea that we're not stuck the way that we are. We're not stuck with our suffering mind. We're not stuck with our habits and our emotional reactivity. That these things are um, adventitious. That they, uh, that they pop up in our life due to the right kinds of circumstances, but they're not concrete, fixed parts of our identity and that we can learn to grow past that, grow past all, many of the limitations that we um, perceive in ourselves as being a, you know, getting older and getting sick and dying and, and so on, that these things are, that it's possible to evolve beyond them. And that's what going for refuge to the, that's one way of thinking about going for refuge to the Buddha. That the enlightened principle exists and that it is achievable for us. And going for refuge to the Dharma, the Dharma is the, um, the teachings and the practices and the things that we can do in our lives to help this process along, to, to accelerate it wherever possible. That other beings who have completed this process or who have made it a lot further along than, than I am now, I don't, I, I don't know where you guys are at because I'm not, I personally am not omniscient, but speaking personally, I have a long way to go. Um, but beings who, who have achieved advanced states of consciousness um, have left a trail of breadcrumbs behind for us to follow. And that is the Dharma. And so we go for refuge to the Dharma by, by recognizing that there are things that we can do, that there, are, that there are ways that we can modify our lifestyle to accelerate our cosmic evolution. And then we go for refuge to the Sangha. And the Sangha means, uh, in its broadest sense, the Sangha is um, the community of beings who have achieved enlightenment. Like each of these beings in these illustrations, we have Medicine Buddha over here, and we have Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha over here. We have Tara and Avalokiteshvara. There are multiple different beings who are seen as Buddhas, whether they're mythical Buddhas or historical Buddhas. And, and so the Sangha is that, that others have done this and that they are supporting us along the process. But in its more immediate sense, the Sangha is the people in, the, in this room who come together on a Thursday night instead of all the other things that we could be doing to think about and contemplate these things and to, and to practice meditation together. 
And uh, of course, all the people who make Sky Creek Dharma Center function, you know, the people who are paying the, you know, who are making sure that the mortgage gets paid and the bills get paid and everything, you know, those people, there's all these people who we don't even see who are supporting us being able to, to do these things with our lives. And so we go for refuge to the enlightened principle, the Buddha, the, the steps on the path that lead to enlightenment, the Dharma, and the community of people who are helping us along on the way, the Sangha. And then we set our motivation, which is based in altruism and compassion. Um, I don't think we're going to get into it too much in this class tonight, but um, the laws of karma, of, of cosmic causality, are that the, the things that we experience in our lives are the result of causes that we put into place in the past. And that the decisions that we make and the actions that we do in our present life now are what's creating the results that we'll experience in the future. And so any bad thing that is happening, that we perceive as happening to us, is coming from some similar activity that we did in the past, you know? The cause of having an irritating person in your face is that you irritated somebody else in the past. That's simplistic, but that's like kind of the principle of karma. One, that's one way of characterizing the principle of karma. And so likewise, any good thing that we experience is a result of good things that we've done in the past. Generosity, altruism, protecting other people from harm, and so on. So, the, the path to achieving enlightenment for ourselves is the path of helping others to achieve enlightenment, helping others along on the path. That's how we plant the seeds, quote unquote, to, which will then ripen as our own enlightenment, is helping other people with their spiritual path, with their self-realization, with their personal growth and their personal development, which really is as simple as you know, learning how to observe our emotions so that we can avoid getting triggered and being hijacked by a mental affliction attack in which I'm in a, I'm in a, a rage or something and I just see red. But noticing, like, noticing that freak out before it happens and just developing that kind of internal sensitivity and helping other people develop that kind of sensitivity and being patient with people when they're having a difficult time are all ways that we can begin to practice altruism, we can practice compassion in our own daily life. And so when, we're, we, when we are setting our motivation for something, like, for something like studying the Dharma or having a meditation practice, the motivation is to help others, to move ahead with their own process. Um, you know, traditionally in, in classical Buddhism, they say that a bad motivation would be, for example, fame and fortune, which um, teaching Buddhist philosophy is not really a great path to fame and fortune, if that's what you wanted. But I guess in some cultures, it was you could you could become like a superstar celebrity rock star Buddhist teacher, I guess, and you so you could become a Buddhist teacher with an impure motivation of self-aggrandizement. Um, and so those are the kinds of things we're like, okay, we're not doing it to like be able to impress people at cocktail parties with our knowledge of esoteric philosophy. You know what I mean? That's like a, a, an, a, a, the wrong kind of motivation. The right kind of motivation is I'm doing this so that I can become a better person so that I can help others more effectively. So that's why we show up to something like this. And that's how we begin the practice every single time is by reviewing the reviewing the three jewels and why they are important to us and going for refuge and um, reviewing our motivation and remembering altruism which in um, Buddhist terminology is called bodhicitta in case you've ever heard that term before that's what the motivation is self selfless action um, being um, instead of being self-obsessed being other obsessed so we are um, in a series of classes on uh, applied meditation. And so uh, each, it doesn't really matter if you, you know, if you haven't been to the previous classes, it's not a big deal. Each class is, stands on its own and everything, but um, we're going through the curriculum that was traditionally taught in the Tibetan universities, the Tibetan university monasteries. 
And so uh, a person would join the monastery when they were generally very young, monastery or a nunnery when they're very young, and they would spend 20 years or more studying these kinds of things. So these things are coming into the West and being translated into English, like we're in the first or second generation of this material really coming to the West. But that's the curriculum that we're, that we're following. Um, the, the Kongyur and the Tengyur are the Tibetan terms for the um, canon of texts. This class, um, the reading, comes from a book called the Lamrim Chenmo, which translates to the great book on the steps on the path, uh, written by Jaitsong Kappa, who founded the Geluk lineage um, around 1400. He lived from 1357 to 1419. Uh, he was the teacher of the first Dalai Lama. Um, Jaitsong Kappa founded the, the lineage of the Dalai Lamas. And so all of the Dalai Lamas are kind of the, the, the figureheads or the progenitors of this particular style, this particular approach to Buddhism. So the, the Lam Rim is what I like to call the enlightenment engine of, Buddhist, uh, of Buddhism. It's like a step-by-step -step process where you can go from being suffering schmuck into enlightened paradise being by, by applying the sequence, uh, by applying the process, by going through the sequence of steps, um, basically you put yourself on the conveyor belt and um, go, through, go through it and you come out on the other side bright and shiny. Um, the Lamrim Chenmo is considered one of the most exhaustive expositions on the Lamrim. There are very short Lamrims that are, that are 14 verses, like very tightly, compact, codified poetry on, on this process. And then there are things that are thousands of pages long, like the Lamrim Chenmo. So this, sec this uh, part of the Lamrim is going to be on how to develop a meditation practice. The conditions for developing quietude. So the, the first, the place to begin really is the conditions of the environment. Um, how to put yourself in the right place in order to have the, the things that you need to have a meditation practice. Um, it's not as simple as just sit every day, although it's, it's a very good practice and a great, uh, a great way to live. But, um, Jaitsong Kappa, in his um, exhaustive writings, breaks it down to do extreme amounts of detail. Um, one of my teachers calls the Geluk school of Buddhism list Buddhism because the Geluks love to break everything down into these lists. So that's what we're going to do. Um, the first of these is stay in a conducive place. And that itself has five subsets which are uh, come from the readings you can follow up you can uh, review it later it should be a place with things that are easy to find in the sense that you can find food clothing and other necessities without trouble i think in the modern west we kind of have this one like turned up to 11 a little bit maybe like it's you know we have dozens of restaurants and clothing suppliers and things like that it's not like you have to hunt for your meals or anything it should be a good place in the sense that there are no fearful creatures like wild animals, nor any persons like enemies who would try to harm you. Um, this is why it can be kind of challenging to meditate outside, because there's always some part of your mind that's like, what kind of creatures might sneak up on me and bite me or whatever? So it's like nicer to meditate inside when you have that sense of security and safety. Uh, it should have a good environment in the sense that the environment doesn't cause any kinds of sickness to develop in you. Um, in in uh, the 1400s when this was written probably they were worried about like you know bad food and stuff like that or, or polluted water in the modern day we have things like noise pollution and uh, air pollution and so on so um, or you know have you ever lived in one of those basement apartments that has black mold and you get like allergic reactions to your own apartment. Jaitsong Kappa says don't live there. Find another place to live. 
Um, there should be good friends there in the sense that your companions share your sense of morality and your worldview. That, that your roommates aren't making fun of you for wanting to meditate or practice spiritual cultivation. Um, and ideally that you have people around you who understand that it's important and support you in your practice. And in general, to sum it up, the place should have goodness in the sense that during the day there should not be many people around and during the night there should not be many sounds. All right, thanks Jade Zonkapa, that, that's pretty clear. The second condition is to live simply and keep your wants few. Have no great attachment to things like fine clothes or a lot of things or the like. So this, now we're getting kind of clearer that these are lifestyle choices. These are lifestyle modifications. This is like how, the kinds of things that you need to start looking at your, in your own life and to, to start modifying because that's what can creates the condition of possibility to have a successful meditation practice. Because this condition, keeping your wants few, isn't really an external thing, you know, it's an internal thing. It's about being content with what you have. The third condition uh, is that you're easily satisfied, that you feel like you have enough, even if you don't have the best stuff. Um, even if the clothes that you find are the worst. Jade Tsongkhapa says, even if you have the worst clothes, that you're easily satisfied with those clothes. The fourth condition is that you give up trying to do too many things, give up being busy. You know, it's, uh, it's almost like a, in our culture, it's almost like a, a badge of pride if you have too much going on. And you're like, it's like a way to convince other people that we're important, that, we have so, that we're so busy all the time. But um, that kind of lifestyle is actually um, prevents having a successful meditation practice. The fifth condition, maintain an ethical way of life. Um, if, um, it's very difficult to have a successful meditation practice if you have things weighing on your conscience. Um, especially if you go into retreat and you, and you spend significant amount of time doing meditation in a, in a solitary type environment. Um, like all, every, so I've been told, I, I haven't done a lot of deep retreat, um, but what I've been heard, what I've been told from people who've spent months or even years in retreat is that you're basically locked in a room where, alone, where every nasty thing that you said it comes, plays in front of you like a, like a movie, you know, every, every harsh thing that you said, every, you know, every little thing that you did that undercut somebody or hurt somebody, those things are lodged in your consciousness somewhere. And this is again, kind of that idea of karma, that, that our, our intentions create imprints in our mind, which then influence how our lives unfold. And so um, this is why Buddhism has vowed morality, where there's like a formal ceremony where you like promise to not hurt people anymore and you promise to stop lying and you promise to um, stop gossiping and divisive speech and, and so on. Um, because it's so important to really mind your P's and Q's when it comes to your ethical life. Because if you want to go deep in meditation, you're gonna have to face all that stuff again sooner or later. And the sixth, again, to sum it up, is to get rid of desire for worldly things. Um, the, the, what this refers to is the, is the sort of pervasive thought that something outside of us can bring satisfaction. Excuse me. That if only I had a better house or a better partner or a better car or a better job or more money or new shoes or whatever it is. I mean, we, you know, we all have this kind of thing that if only that thing was corrected, then I would have that sense of satisfaction. And 
what Jetson Kappa is saying here, and really throughout Buddhist philosophy, it's that the things outside of us aren't, the things that we seek outside of ourselves are not really, they don't have the happiness producing characteristics in the things. The happiness, the, hap, the characteristics of happiness producing are our reaction to the things. And we, you know, we have this hedonic treadmill where we adapt to whatever circumstances we have. So you can get the nicest car there is, but eventually you adapt to it. And then you've got to find out like what's the other thing that's gonna, the car, you got used to the car, it's gonna be something else. Maybe, you know, in this group, nice cars aren't the, the thing that we're after. But if only we could fix that thing, you know, whatever that thing is, like it's the, it's the obnoxious boss. If only I could get rid of the obnoxious boss and get a job that didn't have the obnoxious boss. That mode of thinking keeps us in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction, which makes it impossible to really go deep into meditation. And so with these six things, we are creating the condition of possibility where our meditation practice can really be fruitful. So the next, uh, the next segment is the, um, how to have the, the physical posture for meditation. And um, for those of you who have come to other sessions that I have led, um, we generally go through this in the um, guided meditation after the break. Um, because the really the the seven point or here he has an eight point posture is itself a great meditation object, a great way to get started with meditation is just to like start getting really familiar with the physical sensations of ease and restfulness, of physical comfort that is the kind of the foundation of the other aspects of meditation. So we begin with the, the legs. According, traditionally, they say the legs should be uh, crossed in either full lotus or half lotus. Um, this was in a culture where people didn't have chairs, and so they were raised sitting on the floor. They had a lot more hip flexibility just by the fact that they all grew up sitting in, on, the, on the ground. Um, you know, our, our culture has chairs, and so we didn't have quite that. We don't have the same kind of uh, hip flexibility necessarily. Um, so I, I kind of recontextualize this a little bit as getting in touch with the sense of grounded stability of our posture. Um, there's something to be said for that the crossed legs give you a sense of collected energy. Um, but sitting in a chair is fine too. The, so I, I put this as, I mean, I rephrase this in the West as feeling that sense of stability, recognizing that sense of groundedness of the earth. Um, if you've ever done Qigong, which is Chinese yoga, it's a big part of Chinese yoga. It's like you, uh, you continually come back to this sense of rootedness. There's a lot of standing meditation postures in Qigong. And so you're not sitting cross-legged or in a chair, but you continually come back to the stability of the feet, the, 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 the rootedness of the body into the earth. The, uh, the eyes should be neither open nor fully closed. So they, you want to, the eyes should be cracked just enough to let in a little bit of light but not with uh, not looking outside or focusing <coughs> at anything. Um, it's it's commonly taught meditation with the eyes closed, and actually, it's a fine way to begin because it's very you know it's very helpful for help for drawing the energy inward and not being oriented towards the sense objects that are that could distract us outside. But um, in more advanced stages of meditation. Um, dullness, subtle, subtle dullness is a major obstacle and um, having the eyes cracked and letting a little bit of light in um, helps a lot with that dullness, helps maintain that alertness and so um, 
um, Jaitson Kappa is, is encouraging us here to develop that habit early in our meditation practice of having the eyes just a little bit cracked and letting a, uh, a little bit of light in. The back should be straight. Um, we off, it, 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 Straight is, of course, relatively speaking, because the spine has a natural curve to it. So you don't want it to be ramrod straight like a, like a uh, broom handle or something like that, but more like a stack of coins <laughs> where uh, it is stable and balanced. Avoid having your body lean too far back or too far forward. Straighten up your spine and sit there, directing your thoughts within. The shoulders should be even, level, neither shoulder higher than the other. Um, also, I um, like to emphasize that the shoulders should be anchored on the back body, like retracting your shoulder blades and bringing them in and back. Um, and the reason for that is mostly because in, uh, we have a lot of forward rolled postures in the way that, we're work, that we work. If you use a computer or you work at a desk a lot, then your posture just kind of naturally moves forward into this kind of thing, you know? Um, so having the shoulders level, but also on the, uh, on the back body, opening up the chest. The head should be kept erect, neither tilted down nor up. So um, this is the, the idea that the, the chin is slightly tucked, um, but not so far forward that the head is down and not tilted back either. So the head is relatively straight. I, I like the metaphor of visualizing a crown, a, a thread connected to the crown, drawing the spine upwards. And so we have this kind of diametrically opposed energy in the posture where we're directly paying attention to the stability of the seat, the legs crossed or the feet connected with the earth. And at the same time, we're feeling the crown of the head elevated and drawn upwards, which creates this length and, and this stacked sens sensation in the spine. And of course, the head should not be tilted to the left or the right either. The teeth and lips should be in a a relaxed, closed position with the tongue. Oh, these are these are two. The teeth and lips in a relaxed, closed position. That's number six. Number seven, the tongue should be kept um, resting gently on the upper palate behind the front teeth. Um, and that's called the, usually this is the seven point, this is called the seven point posture of the Buddha Vairochana. I think they even mention that in here. Yeah, sit in the, the full lotus position of the being named Vairochana. So these are called the seven-part the seven posture of Vairochana. But here they include the, the, an eighth step, which is the breath. Um, the breathing should be silent. It should not be, um, it should not be rough um, or coarse. It should be um, uh, long and fine. Um, and it should get to the point in meditation where your breath should be effortless and you don't have to really pay much attention to it. Ultimately, these, these eight steps are to get the body in a place where we can just park it and then focus on our meditation without having to be overly concerned with whether or not I'm feeling particularly comfortable. You know, if you, start, if you get into a meditation posture and you're uncomfortable from the beginning, it's only going to become more uncomfortable as time goes on. So um, really getting the meditation posture dialed in is kind of a prerequisite to successful, the, the subse successful subsequent steps. Um, it's one of the main purposes of asana yoga, the physical postures of yoga that they're teaching at most of these yoga studios. The original purpose of yoga is to get the body limber and get the energy worked out so that you can park it in a meditation posture and more or less forget about the body. It's not begging for attention. Yoga is a transitional step to, to deeper states of meditation. So that is the, the review of the environment and the posture for meditation. And now we're going to talk a little bit more about what to meditate on. Because the object of meditation is, of course, very important. And um, at the beginning, we're focusing on the, uh, on the posture, just getting in touch with the physical sensations of the body. If you ever go to a, 
a Vipassana retreat where um, you go to a center and you do a 10-day completely silent immersive meditation retreat. You meditate several hours a day. Um, there's, a, there's a center just south of Sacramento and they do several of these a year and they're also run free by donation. So if you're interested in doing a meditation retreat, this would be a pretty cool way to get started because they kind of push you in the deep end and you have to ride out the 10 days. Um, and the meditation is entirely a body awareness meditation. There's pretty much no mental or philosophical object. You're just, the whole process is getting in touch with the, the physical sensations of the body in a meditation posture. Um, however, the, the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism is um, quite uh, intellectualized and, and, and uh, very elaborate, well-developed philosophical system. And so that's why in, uh, in this approach, according to Jetson Kappa, we have a sequence of meditation objects that we go through to develop uh, a certain level of realization that then is the foundation for the subsequent step. And that's the lam rim, the, the steps on the path. Rim means steps and lam means path. I hope I got that right. Um, I think that's correct. So it really, it literally means steps on, steps on the path. And it basically, it starts, as I mentioned earlier, it starts at the beginning and you move through the sequence of steps, um, each based on the step before it. So the, the beginning of the Lam Rim, the Lam Rim is broken into two segments. The first is how to find a teacher and the second is how to put into practice the things that your teacher teaches you. Um, when Tibetan Buddhism was first encountered by um, the British as they were moving their way through South Asia, um, Tibetan Buddhism, they actually saw it as a, as a different religion from Buddhism. Uh, they called it Lamaism um, because uh, while Buddhism recognizes that, the, that there is an ultimate guru, uh, the spiritual teacher whose role is to guide you along the, the spiritual path, uh, Tibetan Buddhism really focuses on seeing your own personal teacher as the Buddha, uh, him or herself. So, um, I, I, I still am trying to figure out how this translates into Western culture because, you know, we, our culture has this radical individualism thing where, like, I you know, everybody's an expert and I know best and, and, um, and we have kind of this, this uh, contentious power dynamic with, with uh, our leaders or our teachers. And so I don't think we quite culturally have that sense of that sweetness of devotion that, uh, that having that reverence to your Lama kind of requires. Um, and we also are not a monastic culture, you know? This was developed in a culture where 40% of society dropped out and joined the Buddhist universities where they were just studying and meditating all day. Um, Robert Thurman compares the, our military industrial complex with the Tibetans' spiritual industrial complex, where basically they had the same the same type of orientation where 40, 30, 40, 50% of society's resources were, de were devoted to this one particular thing. In Tibetan culture, the thing that everybody universally felt was important was self-realization and personal cultivation. And so people will, were happy to financially support this network of monasteries and Buddhist universities where people basically were like, I'm dropping out of consumerism, I'm dropping out of business, I'm not gonna become a politician, I'm gonna spend my whole life contemplating these kinds of topics. And then the other 60 or 70% of society is like, good on you, man. We'll support that financially, you know? So their spiritual industrial complex created a, a culture of spiritual reverence <coughs> in which finding your heart lama, your, the, the spiritual teacher who captivates you and steals your heart and naturally turns your mind towards 
altruism and spiritual cultivation, finding that person and having a relationship with that person was like kind of the most important thing in your life. And of course, monastics don't get married, so you know, they, they weren't spending time dating or whatever, trying to find their next girlfriend. They were focused entirely on having this reverential, devotional attitude towards their spiritual teacher. And uh, I'm not quite sure, I, I'm, I'm not sure how that translates into Western culture. Like that's something that we all have to kind of explore for ourselves. Like we can, we can cultivate what that being would be like in our mind's eye. We have artistic representations of Buddhas, you know, smiling on us. And we can imagine that they are real people, even though we can't necessarily see them or interact with them. Or we can choose to Im Im basically impose those characteristics on someone in our life. And we can choose to see someone else as our guru, choose to see whether, whether or not they're a formal Buddhist teacher or not. We can choose to see somebody who's important in our life as our spiritual guide. And the, and the guidelines basically are everything that they do is a teaching or a test. They're either pointing out to you where you still have work to do or they are providing you with information that you can use to help your own self-realization. And you see, that's a totally subjective process. The other person doesn't even really need to know about it necessarily. Now, this is not formally authorized by the Gelugpa Buddhist lineage. And I've talked to Tibetan Buddhists who are like, no way, guru is such, is a, such an important role. They have to be a spiritual teacher. And, and it has to be like a formal relationship. But I've met other teachers who say that your teacher doesn't need to know that they're your teacher necessarily. You could just choose to take one person and say, they're special, they're, they're my guardian angel. They were sent here on my case. And they don't look like a guardian angel to me because I don't have the purity of vision or the purity of insight to see their ultimate cosmic evolutionary state. But I can train myself to see more of those characteristics in another person and in, and in more other people. You know, a Buddha is a being who sees every single being in the universe, infinite numbers of beings, as special and beautiful and their, you know, cherished loved one. And so that's what, that's what our cosmic evolutionary process is going to look like too, is that we want to gradually include, increase the, the scope of what I consider cherished loved ones to include every being, you know, from, from ants up to president-elects. Because they all inherently have the same characteristics of wanting happiness and avoiding pain. That's how, see, there's like kind of two ways to look at it. You look at it as suffering beings and I'm altruistic. I'm trying to develop compassion and, and love for them. And how I do that is to see them the way that my guru sees me and my guru sees me as somebody who's like, instead of saying you're, a, you're an asshole, they instead are like, they're there. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, you know, you don't have to, you don't, you know, you don't have to do the same thing next time. I forgive you. I love you. So anyway, um, that's, that's like how we, that's the process of developing faith in your guru. And you develop that reverence in your mind. And then in your actions, you treat that person like they're special. Treat them like they're special to you. And then, um, according to the Lam Rim, that's how uh, we that's how we develop the energy that's going to give us the forward momentum to make progress in the subsequent steps is by recognizing that a Buddha, recognizing that Buddhas exist and kind of in the abstract, like we did when going for refuge in the very beginning. But it's more like choosing, it's more like I'm going to put this into practice with a real person in my life. And um, it's easy to have a guru who lives on the other side of the country and, you don't, and they're not in your face very much. Um, but it's a, it's a lot more challenging, but also there's a lot more potential 
in having someone who you have to interact with uh, on a regular basis and seeing them as, as your guru there to teach you. Taking the essence of this life, developing the motivation to practice by recognizing our leisure and fortune. Um, leisure and fortune is, I, I mean, it, it, we, in, in our world, we have leisure and fortune off the, off the freaking charts. Um, this was written in, 14, in the 1400s where like having enough yak butter and barley flour was like, all right, you know, we're, we're rolling in dough. You know, let it, oh, that was a pun. I didn't mean that, but it was a pun. <laughs> uh, and where distractions were like occasionally a horse cart goes by on the path outside of your meditation hut, you know, let alone our world where we have grocery stores with unlimited amounts of every conceivable type of food and, um, you know, Netflix with every TV show ever made at your fingertips. Um, so recognizing our leisure and fortune basically means that we have a life where we have the time and the resources to spend on, on, on self-realization and personal growth and personal development. Um, you know, we don't, the fact that we don't live in a war zone and that we have the resources to drive way out past the airport in Chico to, uh, to hang out at a Dharma center and we don't have to like struggle for our immediate next meal. Even in the world today, we're at the top, you know? And then look at world history, you know, the kind of, the kind of comforts that we have today surpass what only the wealthiest people in the world would have access to 100 or, or 200 or let alone 500 years ago. So our leisure and fortune is totally off the charts and, and what that means is that we had to generate a great degree of upward karmic momentum in order to be born into a life like this. We had to be world-class, like freaking saints. We had to be saints in our past lives in order to be born into a life where we have things like cars and smartphones and pizza delivery. And, um, and so do like, like just comparison shopping on this planet. Like, you know, Buddhism doesn't necessarily think that, it doesn't assume that you're going to be reborn as a human or that you were a human in your past life, that, that consciousness, the consciousness in an amoeba is more or less the same consciousness that's in a human being or an animal. So just looking around this planet where we have, you know, there are way more animals than there are humans, and there are way more insects than there are animals, uh, and then Buddhism supposes all kinds of invisible beings that don't even have bodies or bodies that we can't even see, or that there are planets where the surface of the planet is made of molten iron and, and beings have to try to survive in a sea of molten iron. Like, the, the Buddhist hell realms are quite vivid. <laughs> uh, because, it's, you see, it's subjective. They're subjective states of consciousness. So what created the subjective experience of the kind of comforts that we have in our life we could just as easily create the, the subjective, or actually much more easily, create the subjective state of being constantly in panic that something else is going to eat me, which is how the vast majority of animals and insects in our world live, you know? They're, most of them are not pets that um, get bowls of food uh, on a regular schedule. Most animals are living in constant fear so when we just do a little bit of comparison shopping, and even human beings, you know, half of the world is illiterate. Most people in the world don't have access to clean water or food. And, you know, this isn't meant to guilt trip or whatever. This is just meant to point out the rarity and the specialness of the leisure and fortune that we have. And then, it gets a little more gloomy, so bear with me. Um, 
the, the, next, the next stage, recognizing leisure and fortune, gets us, basically gets you out of bed in the morning. Waking up and realizing, like, waking up and thinking about all the things that are going well in your life is what gets your, mo your motivation to, to practice. And then realizing that it's for a limited time only, that this, that this situation is not permanent, that it, that it will go away. That, that death is inevitable. And so this is death awareness. And, um, and uh, you know, in, Buddhist, in the Buddhist worldview, death is not the end. It's the end of this identity construct, but it's not the end of this mind stream. And so the momentum that you've generated through this life, culminating in the moment of death, is what drives the consciousness into the subsequent rebirth. And whether that rebirth is... Uh, is going up the, up the ladder or down the ladder depends on the habits that you develop in this life. So um, basically, in the Buddhist view, you're not a spiritual practitioner unless you're primarily concerned about the next life that if your practice is motivated on like getting a better deal in the next 10 years that it's not that it's still basically a materialist practice it's not really a spiritual practice the spiritual practice comes from when from recognizing that this life is a drop in the bucket compared to the the process of of uh, karma and rebirth karma driving rebirth and that's why death gives some intensity to the the urgency to practice um, the three aspects of the death awareness meditation is that um, death is certain the time of death is uncertain there's no such thing as an average lifespan it could come anytime and at the time of death the things that you've accumulated in this life the relationships and the money and so on won't be able to help you they won't be able to provide any refuge and that the only thing that will help is the is your spiritual development the, the stability of your meditation the intensity of your compassion and love because that's what you need to hold on to at the moment of death in order to drive the rebirth process in an upward direction and then contemplating the suffering of the lower rebirths uh, as an animal, a craving spirit, or a hell being, which I more or less already covered. The methods to achieve a higher rebirth in the next life are going for refuge and contemplating the laws of karma. Recognizing the things that can help us the three jewels and the things that can't help us ultimately like career and money and relationships and material possessions and things like that and then contemplating the laws of karma that the things that you experience are the result of your not just your actions but on a deeper level your intentions that your intentions are what create your experience of the of the world your intentions in the past that the who you, who, the world you experience is a reflection of the karmic seeds, which is a metaphor, of course. They're not actually seeds. Uh, the, the karmic seeds that you've planted in the past and how you react to what's happening in the present are the karmic seeds you're planting to, that will um, manifest as the type of future that you experience. So that's why we contemplating the laws of karma are, are recognizing that indulging in mental afflictions coddling anger and hatred and jealousy and feelings like this are creating habits that are going to ensure that we have a lower rebirth and what part of uh, leisure and fortune is recognizing how hard it is to generate the karmic potential to have a human birth in which you have physical comfort, you have literacy, you have enough to eat, 
And more than that, you have interest in spiritual things that you're curious about, about studying how to grow spiritually and how to meditate. That is a really important part of it, that, that willingness. You know, there are millions of people who have all of the money and the food and the things that they need, but they couldn't care less about growing spiritually. You know, they, like, they were born with a karmic trust fund and, you know, burning through that good karmic cash without reinvesting it in having a, no, having a favorable rebirth in the future. And so contemplating the suffering of the lower rebirths is to help us realize that we're not guaranteed a, a favorable rebirth and that we actually need to really invest the, the, um, the benefits and the privileges of our lives into helping others, which generates the powerful altruism and the powerful compassion, which is going to drive our consciousness into a better rebirth um, after our death. So it's also traditional at the end of a Buddhist teaching. We're going to take a break in a minute and then we'll come back and meditate. But just to wrap up for, for now, um, the, the, way, the traditional way to end um, a teaching or a meditation practice is to dedicate the good karma. Um, we've invested a lot of time and energy and, and awareness into getting out here and thinking about these things. And, um, and we need to, and, it, and it's beneficial for us to recall that, that that's not just for our own benefit, but that it's making me a better person so that I can help others. And that in ultimate sense, in the ultimate sense, this is um, accelerating my cosmic evolution into the state of having perfect love and compassion and omniscience. And that that's really the, it's really from that place that we're in a good state to help others. And therefore, the best way to help others is to get enlightened as quickly as possible using any means necessary. And with that motivation in mind, we um, imagine or visualize that the efforts we've made here is directly having a positive impact on the lives of countless beings all over the universe.